You may be seated. According to an Independence Day-themed Gallup poll that was taken just last week, 85% of those surveyed said that they were extremely proud or very proud to be an American. Are you? Well, assuming that proud here is essentially synonymous with grateful, I certainly am. From her infancy, we see much evidence that God has shed His grace on our dear nation. And in many ways, America has been and is truly exceptional. But in our national pride, I fear there's a significant danger of thinking that America is somehow God's chosen country and superior in virtually every way to all other nations. This extreme pride can lead, I think, to many legitimate problems. And here are just three listed by Paul Pillar, a veteran of the CIA. First, it encourages the mistaken belief that our values and political institutions, because they are deemed superior to anyone else's, will be readily accepted and understood by non-Americans. Second, it makes it difficult for us to see the negative sides of what many non-Americans see, fairly or unfairly, in the United States. It thus is hard for Americans to understand anti-Americanism. And then third, in general, it inhibits appreciation of the limitations to what we as a country can accomplish. So why is it, do you suspect, that we are so prone to think too highly of our country and look down on other nations as inferior in every way? Why is that? Well, I think it is likely this is just my suggestion. It is likely because we so very naturally do the exact same thing with ourselves. As individual Americans, we are really good at comparing ourselves with other people and thinking we're pretty good. And that, too, leads to distinct problems. In fact, in fact, I would suggest that the danger and consequence is even more significant than on the national level. For how you and I view ourselves as individuals in relationship to other people and to God is a matter of life and death. Eternal life and death. We see this illustrated in a parable told by Jesus, a parable that's found only in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I invite you there in your Bibles, please turn and locate this particular parable in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus was a master storyteller, and parables are a type of story. 
And this is one of the many that he told to the crowds that gathered around him. Please follow along as I read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We see in this parable two men, two prayers, and two results. The first man is a Pharisee. He was part of the most highly esteemed group in Jewish society. He would have been seen as a devout, upstanding citizen who feared God and served his people with distinction. Pharisees were viewed much like people in our society today view the guy who's the director of the homeless shelter. He's the upstanding citizen who gets news stories done about him. He's the kind of guy that you would really like to have as one of your neighbors. The tax collector, on the other hand, wasn't like so much. In fact, as much as the Pharisees were admired, tax collectors were hated. They were literally the scum of Jewish society. The powerful nation of Rome would conquer territories and conquer peoples, and then they would delegate the collection of taxes to private Roman contractors. Kind of, we'd call them tax farmers. And then those tax farmers would employ Jewish men to collect for them, kind of to do their dirty work. The Jewish hired man knew how much he needed to give his Roman boss, but his salary and what he would take home had to come off the top or extra than what he needed to give his Roman boss. So you can imagine what that led to. You can imagine what that looked like. Their pay was whatever extra they could extort from fellow Jews. So, comparing these people to people in our society, I don't know, but this is a guess. Perhaps the closest people to these tax collectors in our day would be the drug dealer or the pimp. Those who prey on society, who take money off other people's bodies, those who make a living off stealing from other people. 
Now, how does our society view those people? That'll give us a little bit of an idea of how the Jewish society viewed the tax collectors. They were religious and political traitors, utterly despised. The Jewish tradition of the day listed three types of people that you could legitimately lie to, and it was okay. Murderers, robbers, and tax collectors. In fact, it was a public disgrace. If one of your family members was a tax collector, it was a disgrace. In the synagogue, the place of worship would not even accept gifts that came from tax collectors. If they showed up at the door and, I want to give some money to the synagogue, they would not even take it. So who do you think the Jews who heard Jesus thought was the better person? The Pharisee? Or the tax collector? According to our world standards, who do you think should be accepted by God? The director of a homeless shelter? Or the drug dealer? There's two men. We see now two prayers. The Pharisee's prayer reveals that he considered himself to be very righteous. And he wanted to make sure God knew how good he was. He informs God that he fasts twice a week, which is a lot, considering that the law required only one annual fast for Jews on the Day of Atonement. Well, this guy just went a tad bit over what was required, upping it by 103 times. He also lets God know that he gives tithes on all that he owned. Now, the law, the, the Old Testament, the Jewish law, required a tithe only on the fruit of the field and the produce of the cattle. This guy tithed on everything. Imagine giving to the church 10% of the value of everything that you buy. Everything. Even if the producers of that product had already paid a tithe on the material. The Pharisee thought he was righteous. His prayer in the words of Hughes was essentially a self-congratulatory monologue disguised as prayer. He was stoned on self. His prayer also reveals that he compared himself to others rather than to God. It is easy to see how he thought he was so righteous when the tax collector was his standard. After all, he was the church guy. He was a Bible student. He had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized. People would come to him asking questions about what the law meant. So compared to the tax collector, oh yeah, he looked really, really good. The tax collector's prayer reveals that he saw himself not as righteous, but as a sinner. 
but as a sinner. And actually in verse 13, a literal translation, what would be a better translation of the Greek, would be, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The definite article is in the Greek. The sinner. He saw himself as the quintessential sinner. His sentiment was, God, I am as sinful as they come. Rather than comparing himself with others, he compared himself with God. I think this is the why he approached God the way that he did. We see here that he stood at a distance. He would not even lift up his head. He knew God's standard was the only one that mattered. And he knew in his heart he didn't measure up. Comparing himself to God and seeing himself as a sinner left the tax collector with no other option than to plead to God for mercy. As Manson said, he asked for God's mercy because God's mercy was the only thing that he dared ask for. And he wasn't just asking for mercy as we would normally think of it. Literally here in the text, literally his prayer was, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. So he was praying that God's just wrath would be satisfied. That's what propitiation means. God's wrath satisfied. He was praying that God would mercifully atone for his sins and forgive him of his wickedness. So the Pharisee's prayer revealed that he compared himself with others and thought he was pretty good. The tax collector's prayer revealed that he compared himself with God and he saw himself as sinful as sinful can be. There's two men, two prayers, and now we see two results. Beginning in verse 14, we see these results. We see the verdict, so to speak. And the Pharisee was rejected by God. Uh, He was really, really impressed with his righteousness, but God wasn't. God wasn't impressed with his false righteousness at all. The the Pharisee exalted himself and was humbled by God. The problem was that his self-assessment was wrong. He, He was not righteous, and his standard was wrong. He was using the wrong measuring stick. And the irony in this is that while taking great pride in keeping the law and even going beyond the law, he was actually failing to love the Lord with all his heart. And he most certainly was failing to love his neighbor as himself, which Jesus said are the two commandments which sum up the whole thing. On the other hand, The tax collector, the text says, was justified. He went to his house justified. He humbled himself and was exalted by God. The the sting in most of Jesus' parables comes in the tail, 
And that is certainly the case here. Just imagine, if you can, imagine the shock of those who heard Jesus say the tax collector was justified before God and not the Pharisee. Picture the faces. What? No way. No, that's unbelievable. What, after all, had the Pharisee done wrong? What hadn't the tax collector done wrong? Yet God considered the tax collector to be righteous and not the Pharisee? How can this be? How can God justify or declare to be righteous one who is so wicked, so vile? Well, I think we begin to see the answer in the drama of animal sacrifice that took place in the temple, the the place where these guys were going. We start to see the answer in the drama that took place every day in the temple, which no doubt the Pharisee and tax collector would have seen. This drama of animal sacrifice was a reminder on the one hand that none of us are able to bear our own sins before God and live. And on the other hand, it was a reminder that God was providing a means by which His wrath and judgment might be poured out visibly on a perfect spotless lamb, a substitute as a means of forgiveness with God. For if the wrath of God is poured out on a substitute then the one offering the sacrifice could be set free from the fear of God's wrath and God's judgment. This, of course, is just speculation, but but one has suggested that the tax collector, who no doubt, because of his work with money and numbers, would have been really, really used to careful calculation. And the suggestion is that he would have understood as he's processing this that the lamb which had just been sacrificed in the temple was by no means an adequate sacrifice to take away his sin. But within only about two weeks, at exactly the same time during the evening sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, would die on a wooden cross as a totally complete, sufficient sacrifice for sin. And here it is. Here's our answer. In the cross, we see how God could justify or pay the debt of the tax collector. For on the cross, God poured out His wrath for sin on Jesus. Christ took the punishment for us. He is our propitiation. In the cross, we see God's justice. Sin was paid for. And in the cross, we see God's mercy. Free forgiveness of sin. So here in the cross, we see how God could justify the tax collector, and we see too how we can be righteous before Him. So the question then we must ask is this. 
Have you ever come to God like the tax collector? Have you been justified by God through faith in the saving death of Christ? Perhaps you're here this morning and kind of like the Pharisee, you, you think you're okay. Hey, you wouldn't consider yourself to be a bad person. You're nice to people. You go to church whenever you can. Sometimes it's even almost every week in a month. You take good care of your family. You know, you can always look around at other people and find those who are worse than you. It's not hard to do. You don't have to look far. But that's really irrelevant. That's irrelevant because the standard isn't other people around you. The standard is God's perfect holiness. You must understand that you don't measure up and are not righteous in God's eyes. And you must understand that even your most sincere efforts, your, your, your most well-intended desires to be a good person, can never make you righteous enough to please God. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God. And as good as you may be, I'm really doubtful. I'm really doubtful that your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisee that we just have considered here in this parable. And it never will. And even if it could, in your most successful efforts to keep God's law, you still break it. You're guilty, just like the Pharisee. But there is one person there is, there is one who perfectly fulfilled the law. And there is one person whose righteousness did exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus Christ. And it is through Him. It is only through Him that you can be truly righteous in God's eyes. Perhaps you're here this morning and you identify a lot with the tax collector. In fact, if you were going to put yourself in one of these two profiles, you, you would line up more in your mind with the tax collector than you would with the Pharisee. I just want to suggest to you that, that you're, you're in a really good place. It's a good place to be. But simply acknowledging that you are a sinner is not enough. It's not enough. Like the tax collector, you must humbly cry out to God for mercy. For only then will he accept you as righteous through the work of Christ. And I suspect as well that it's possible, I know this may not be the case with all of you, but perhaps with some, in your identification with the tax collector, you are literally overwhelmed with the guilt from your sin. So much so that you honestly question in your heart whether God could even forgive you. 
I just want to say that that thought is a lie. Don't believe it. If God can forgive the tax collector, He can forgive you. No sin you ever committed is too big for God to forgive, and no accumulation of sins from your past is too much for God to forgive. The Pharisee here was not accepted by God based on his good deeds. And the tax collector was not rejected by God because of his bad deeds. You see, justification before God has nothing to do with your past lifestyle, but it has everything to do with your heart attitude before God and your response to the work of Christ on the cross. As we just sang, don't let conscience or, or guilt make you linger, nor of fitless fitness fondly dream, oh, if only I was a better person, God would accept me. No. No, all the fitness he requires is that you sense and feel your need for him. So don't delay anymore. As we also sang, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. So if God has given you the grace to see yourself as the sinner, it's a grace. If God's given you that grace, then like the tax collector, call out, call out to God for mercy. And I suspect that many of you here have, at some point in your past, come to see yourself as the sinner. You have genuinely believed that your very best deeds, in God's eyes, are like filthy rags, and you place your faith in Christ alone for your righteousness. I trust that that is many of us. Well, this parable has much, as much to say to you as anyone. And as Christians, it's very easy for us to once again become confident in our own righteousness and to compare ourselves with others rather than God, just like the Pharisee. Paul Tripp said, We are wrong to think that what is, blind, what is blunting the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ is just sin. I would argue that it is righteousness, sturdy, lasting, hard to penetrate self-righteousness. What is he talking about? Is self-righteousness really that big of a problem in the church? It is. It is, and I think that it will be a benefit for us to park here for a few minutes and reflect on Tripp's analysis. And I draw from him as he's given such careful diagnosis of our hearts in this regard. Through meditation on this, it has been very convicting for me because I have been reminded, again, just how deeply rooted and how widespread self-righteousness is in my own heart. 
But with that conviction, I'll say that there's been fruit. It's been good. It's been good for my soul to sit in this and see again the prevalence of this sin in my life. And I trust that such reflection will be the same for you, both convicting and fruitful. So, so I wonder, Christian, do you see in your heart and life, do you see the threads of self-righteousness? Wife, husband, why do you think that we can't listen to our mate without getting defensive the minute they suggest that something is wrong? Why is that? Well, it's not, all right? It's not because we're yet to figure out their love language. And it's not that we've had too much time since our last date night. It's because we're self-righteous. Teenagers. I see a few teens here in the room. Why do you resist godly wisdom and instruction from your parents? I'll suggest that it's because you're self-righteous. Why are your relationship with others at church so easily restricted to the terminally casual? In other words, why is it that your relationships have really nothing to do with your real life? It is likely because you're self-righteous. So, so we must see, we must all know, and we must begin to see that all of us, every single one of us, is self-righteous. And as hard as it is to swallow, the very same thing that we, we so quickly and so naturally look down on the Pharisee for, that, that very same thing still resides in our hearts. This very same self-righteousness that damned the Pharisee is dangerous for us as Christians. And it's dangerous for us as Christians for the following four reasons. First, it's dangerous because it's deceptive. It's deceptive. Self-righteousness does a really good job of wearing the mask of true righteousness. It's all about pretend. You see, the Pharisee did not, go up, did not get up on this morning and say that he was going to give himself to more false righteousness. He didn't look in the mirror and say, you know, I love the sham and the fraud of my religiosity. No, we, we, we read his prayer. He was sincere. He really thought that he was righteous. So there's deception here because we can be self-righteous and be totally oblivious. We can be self-righteous and not even know it. It should scare us that we have the ability to look at our counterfeit righteousness and see true righteousness. We can be self-righteous and not even know it. So self-righteousness is dangerous because it's deceptive. Second, it's dangerous because it bypasses the heart. It bypasses the heart. As Jesus made very clear in his Sermon on the Mount, True righteousness always begins by submitting our hearts to the standards of God's. 
In that sermon, there are many things he rattled off, adultery, all these sins, anger. And, and Jesus was saying, and it was radical to the Jews who heard it, but he's saying, this is a matter of the heart. It's not about keeping the law, it's your heart. Yet self-righteousness tells you, well, I put a decent-sized check in the offering. I read my Bible and prayed every day last week. I invited my unbelieving friend to church and youth activities. Therefore, that the thinking can be, therefore, I am righteous. We're so wired to think about what we can do to become more righteous when we should constantly be asking ourselves questions like these. Why was it that I did that? Why? Why did I not do that? Questions like, you know, what is it that is wrong with me? How? How can I deal with this? How is it that I can change? What rules our heart will control our behavior? We will never win the battle of righteousness at the point of behavior. The battle of righteousness is only won at the point of the heart. The Pharisees' righteousness was not from the heart, which is why in reality it was no righteousness at all. So self-righteousness is dangerous because it bypasses the heart. Third, Self-righteousness is dangerous versus Christians because it contradicts the gospel. It contradicts the gospel. Earlier, we considered the gospel message. How is it that God accepts sinners? Is it through any merit of our own? Is it based on anything that we have done? No. No, we cannot attain God's righteousness on our own. But self-righteousness turns that totally on its head. It always diminishes God's standard down to something that is humanly doable. And it subtly sends the message, look at me, I'm righteous. I can do it. Check out what I have done. And so keeping the law no longer needs the operation of grace if all God's standards are humanly doable. When we're self-righteous, what we're doing is this, and this is really, really significant. When we're self-righteous, we are practically, in the way that we're acting and living, we are practically denying the power of the gospel. And we're really saying, I don't need that. I'm good. Self-righteousness is dangerous because it contradicts the gospel. And fourth, self-righteousness for the Christian is dangerous because it hinders sanctification. It hinders sanctification. We cannot become more like Christ. We cannot grow as Christians when we're self-righteous. Self-righteousness blocks the operation of grace, the grace of Jesus. Hey, just think about it. After all, who is grace for? Who is grace for? Grace is for the sinner. 
the, the tax collector, but not the Pharisee. So in the same way that self-righteousness kept the Pharisee from seeing his need for God's grace and salvation, self-righteousness keeps us from seeing our ongoing need for God's grace in our sanctification. This trip has said so well, what you say to you, about you, will determine how you respond to God's gift of grace. What you say about you, to you, will determine how you respond to God's gift of grace. So if we think we're righteous when we really aren't, we're not going to seek the true righteousness that we need to grow. So husbands, why is it that you don't seek help for the struggles in your marriage, but you somehow in some way think that you're okay? Wife, why are you miffed when your husband comes to you and points out something that you were wrong about? It's because you think you're okay. Child, elementary school student, teenager, why do you convince yourself that you really don't need the counsel of your parents? It's because you think that you're okay. Church member, why do you so naturally rationalize, blame shift, get defensive or dismissive when another member of the church who has covenanted with you to care for your soul points out a concern or a pattern of sin that they are seeing in your life? It's because you think you're okay. So as long as this self-righteousness is present, I hope we can see this, as long as we think we're okay, there's not going to be change. There's not going to be change. It hinders our sanctification. And just like the Pharisee, just like the Pharisee in this regard, we oftentimes compare ourselves with others rather than with God. In the comparison with other people, what that does is it pours gas on the fire of our self-righteousness and in the process stifles our own sanctification. Here are some examples of how we can do this. Have you ever heard a sermon, listened to a sermon, and thought, boy, I am so glad that so-and-so is hearing this. They sure need it. I think we all have, okay? Now, I don't question for a second that so-and-so needs this sermon. But do you see what's happening there subtly in your heart? You're comparing yourself to others, and in your self-righteousness, very likely, you're totally missing what God has in that message for you. And that is not helpful to your sanctification. Another example, my wife comes to point out a sin in my life. And I so easily think, even if I don't say it, I can so naturally and easily think, all right, yeah. But you know, I'm not the only sinner in this room. 
So comparing myself to my wife is devastating to my sanctification. Children, teenagers, one last word for you. Your mom says to you, I don't, I'm not suggesting this ever happens, all right? But perhaps it has. Your mom suggests to you that what you said to your sister was mean. And you respond with something to the effect. Okay, but she said something mean to me yesterday. And you say bad things to dad sometimes. It is certainly true that your parents are sinners. And I know, I know that you see their sin really, really well. You see their sin really, really clearly. But refusing to respond to their confrontation of your sin because you see sin in their lives is a result of self-righteousness. And that comparison is devastating to your growth in grace. So to the degree that we're able to convince ourselves that we are okay, we will not seek the intervention of the Savior. The intervention, the rescue that all of us so desperately need and without which we cannot grow. So, so do you see in this? I hope you do. Do you see in this why it is so important that as Christians we continue to compare ourselves to God and not with other people? And that we continue to see ourselves as the sinner? And how important it is that we continue to cry out to God for mercy. See, the humility of the tax collector, this humility we see here, so beautifully portrayed, it's not just essential for our justification. It is also essential for our ongoing progressive sanctification. We simply cannot grow without continuing to actively live in the fundamental basic truths of the gospel that we are unrighteous sinners in desperate need of God's grace and that we must trust in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own. So self-righteousness is dangerous because it hinders our sanctification. It contradicts the gospel. It bypasses the heart and it's deceptive. America has gotten into many bad situations as a result of looking down on other countries and thinking higher of our great country than we should. It's led to a lot of problems. But as we've seen in this parable, thinking that you're okay without need of God's propitiating mercy in Christ will lead to a far greater problem than any of the problems our nation has encountered. It will take you straight to hell, eternally separated from God. 
So do you see yourself as a sinner? Or as righteous? Are you comparing yourself with God? Or with others? If you've never come to God like the tax collector, if you've never cried out to God like he did, do this. Ask God to bring you to the end of yourself. Turn to Christ and cry out for mercy. Stop trusting in your own righteousness and start trusting in the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. If you are a Christian, but like the Pharisee, are, com- are comparing yourself to others and resting in self-righteousness, you must do the exact same thing. Ask God to bring you to the end of yourself again. Keep turning to Christ and keep crying out for mercy. Stop trusting in your own righteousness and keep trusting in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, we look to Thee for grace. Foul, vile, wicked, we to the fountain fly. Wash us, Savior, or we die. We confess to you the sin of self-righteousness. And whether the unbelieving Pharisee, the tax collector, or the believing Pharisee, Father, help each one of us to see our sin. And in your grace, Father, in your grace, draw each one of us to Christ. And help us to see that he is indeed our only hope. It is in his name that we ask this. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing in response to this great text and this great challenge that's been brought before us. No more of 